This is farmland. What will the EU-Mercosur trade agreement mean for Irish farmers? IFA President Joe Healy is here to give his reaction. And as silage fleets across the country struggle to find drivers, Mike Moroni, FCI CEO, outlines what's needed to attract young people into the machinery contracting sector. But first, what do Irish farmers think of EU plans to bring in 99,000 tonnes of beef from South America? Breffney O'Brien travelled to Ballyjames Duff Mart to find out. Recently, Agriland visited Ballyjames Duff Livestock Mart to meet some of the beef farmers present and see how they felt about importing beef as part of the EU Mercosur trade deal. Here's what they said. They want us to plant trees here and then they're bringing it in from South America and they are cutting down forests. You know, and the, see here, you can do nothing, the regulations is here. Out there, I don't know, do they even tag the cattle? It's going to do away with the uh, ordinary farmer, even the beef farmer now, and even the way it was, I've taken 40 cents a kilo less this year than, than any other year. It's for other, the wine and a few other things, cars, German wants the cars in, but we're only a small country here. As I said before, we're only a dot on the map, and uh, if we, they're talking about post cut back or livestock, if we got rid of them all, it wouldn't make a bit of difference. No, sure. As Irish farmers, we don't want to see that coming in here. No. You know, do all, all we can. The factories, of course, they was the biggest problem. Sure, they don't mind if it comes in. Sure, they won't be for nothing. Wouldn't be too happy about it. I think it's very, you know, disappointing. Well, I think it'll have a very negative effect, and also that uh, you know, there's been a lot of work done here in good breeding of beef cattle. I'm not sure what the reasoning was. Maybe they want cheap beef, beef like, and that's like I don't know how they expect beef farmers to be working here in Europe, and the cost of beef is going to go down again, and we're already struggling as beef farmers. I was disappointed. I felt it was a disappointing um, situation for the beef farmers here. Um, I reckon that is going to have a knock-on effect and pull back the price of good cattle here. You see it in the factories at the moment that they're pulled back presently. So it's, it's going to have definitely a knock-on effect. Now they're saying it's only 1.25% of the production, but it'll still, I think, have a knock-on effect on good quality cattle here. I would prefer to eat Irish any day, obviously, yeah. because not enough homegrown. What else would you go for? Support your own. Sure, it's absolutely crazy what's happening. Uh, uh, like they're doing away with forests in Brazil and they want us to plant here in a small island. It's ridiculous, like any politician is encouraging it, like it's, he's not up to it at all. Like it's We're joined now by IFA President Joe Healy. Joe, thanks very much for coming in to us. So Joe, political, and a political agreement has been reached on the Mercosur deal. Mm. Um, there are winners <coughs> and losers. The big winners obviously being the car and car manufacturing industry in the EU, pharmaceutical sector, uh, the machinery sector. The losers being the beef farmer of mm. the EU. We're looking at 99,000 tonnes coming in from the Mercosur block, Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay. Um, farmers are shocked and infuriated by these developments. Um, what's your initial response to what has happened to date and when did you first find out about it? I think, you know, you said about farmers being shocked, they're, they're angry, uh, they feel let down by the EU politicians. Our phones and the office and our own personal phones haven't been as busy 
at any stage during my term as president, whether it was in the aftermath of Brexit, whether it was the weather crisis, the snows, um, downward pressure prices on, on cattle, this has been the busiest time and the biggest reaction that we've got from farmers on the ground. They feel that they've been sold out by the EU Commission. They point to it as being the height of hypocrisy from the EU Commission in the whole area of climate change and uh, also the promotion of double standards, the type of production that we're used to here in Ireland and across Europe, um, the extra costs that that adds to your production line and compare that then with the lack of traceability um, the lack of animal welfare, the lack of regard for the rainforests in, in uh, Brazil, for example. And even in the last few months, uh, Bolsonaro, the European or the Brazilian uh, president or prime minister and his government, they have authorised the use of uh, an extra 150 pesticides in Brazil alone. So all the boxes that we're being asked and forced to tick at Irish and European level the European politicians, particularly Commissioner Malmström, has ran off and, well, I won't say ran off because it's a while in the pipeline, but um, done a deal with countries that, you know, show scant regard for, the, for, those, uh, for those restrictions or those, whether it's on the climate change or animal welfare. Yes, farmers have been incredibly vocal on all those issues, but I suppose at the same time you have Commissioner Hogan coming out saying that there is safeguards and there is environmental measures and regulations and, and rules and terms and conditions and all that is in there in the trade deal that will actually ensure that the beef produced in the Mercosur block will comply with EU regulations and EU standards that's so going to be raised to that level over the number of years before it comes in. Is that good enough? We don't accept that. Uh, you only have to think back to weak flesh and you remember that well, it's in the last year and a half and the European Food and Veterinary Office did uh, a study and a report on what they were getting. Uh, the meat that was coming in was wrong, it wasn't safe and you know their report gave a damning indictment of uh, the Brazilian authorities. I know that there was one line in it said that, that said that the competent authorities in Brazil were not in a position to guarantee the relevant export requirements for the beef uh, there was another line in it where they said that the guarantees that the European Veterinary Office was getting from Brazil were not reliable. So, you know, where where does Commissioner Hogan uh, or indeed any of the other commissioners get the view that uh, it, it has changed since or it will change in the future? So you wouldn't have faith in that that the Mercosur bloc would comply with that? We with don't, we, we don't uh, accept that the Brazilian authorities um, are either strict enough or give accurate information. And when you have, and it's, that's one thing we say in it, when you have the EU Food and Veterinary Office saying it, um, you'd wonder how a commissioner like Malmström from a country like Sweden that's apparently so into climate change and animal welfare, etc., uh, wanting to make sure that during her term and before next October when her term finishes that she would see this over the line and be left as part of her legacy. Another issue that farmers are finding very difficult to wrap their heads around on this as well is the fact that you have Commissioner Hogan coming out in recent weeks uh, talking about, uh, t talking particularly to the suckler sector saying about maybe reduce the numbers there and, and going into forestry more. Mm. And then um, I suppose we have this fund that is coming out, the 100 million euro fund to support beef farmers that have been affected by market disturbances. Um, and then there's 
talks of how that could potentially cap production. So there's trying, it almost seems from an EU perspective, they're trying to slow down production of uh, beef farming from an EU side, but yet we're looking for 99,000 tonnes mm. of beef to still be brought in. So um, that kind of flies in the face of what the EU are pushing on Irish farmers at the moment. And you've raised a number of points there, Claire, and particularly around the 99,000 extra tonnes coming in. Some people might point to the fact, and Commissioner Hogan has said, that it's less than one and a quarter percent of the European market. But when you take the uncertainty of Brexit, and I think any of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, we'd say that we're as clear this minute on where we're going to end up post-Brexit as we were the 23rd or 24th of June three years ago. If that deal goes wrong, if there's a no deal, if the UK are outside of the EU uh, and not trading with the EU, there is the potential there for a million extra tonnes not to have a market. You put this 99,000 tonnes, that's an extra 10% on top of it. So I don't know where that market is going to be. People would say to us, it's time you know, to look beyond the UK. All Irish efforts in relation to the agri-markets has been outside of the UK for the past three years. And the UK has just rolled along itself. And I think what's very telling is that last year, our agri-food exports to the UK went up by 2% from 35 to 37%, even though whether it was the minister, the department, Borbia, uh, you know, all, all the efforts were at looking at countries outside of the UK. So I think with the uncertainty around Brexit, it was reckless and it was wrong by the EU Commission to pursue this deal uh, with, with Mercosur. And I think what's also worth pointing out is that this deal was being negotiated as an EU 28. It's, we're going to be an EU 27. And instead of it being reduced from the 70,000 tonnes, we have seen uh, the, her initial offer, which was made far too early in the negotiations, uh, we've seen it actually increase to 99,000 tonnes. Now, you know, Commissioner Hogan, and he'll be right when he'll say that the Mercosur countries wanted a lot more than 99,000 tonnes. He fought hard to keep it below the 100,000 tonnes, but for farmers, 1,000 tonnes would have been too much coming into a market that's already under pressure, that's already more than self-sufficient, and that looks likely that to be increased by 16% over the next over the next couple of months, maybe. So, um, in the last few weeks, we had the Taoiseach, we had the French president, uh, the Polish mm -hmm. and the, the Belgian prime ministers writing to the EU um, to raise their concerns on this deal. Since then, President Macron has actually said the French are happy enough with the demands of the of the, the Mercosur trade deal. Uh, the Taoiseach has said that the government are going to assess the potential impact of it. It looks like it's going to go ahead and Ireland may not necessarily have a veto. Um, so what, I suppose, what's the IFA going to do to fight mm. for farmers on this? I, I think that in relation to what uh, Commissioner or President Macron, I think he might have known Maybe you say I'm a cynic now, but I think before he signed that letter stating that uh, until Brazil would accept the Paris Agreement, uh, that he wouldn't support it. I think that he probably knew that they would accept the Paris Agreement when he put his name to that letter. On the flip side of that, of that letter, we, we got a letter last week when we were in Brussels, or the week before last, to meet um, Commissioner Malmström's head of cabinet. And uh, we got a letter that day and it was signed by Angela Merkel. It was signed by the leaders uh, from the Netherlands, Sweden, Portugal, Spain, 
Latvia and the Czech Republic, urging uh, President Juncker to see this deal through without delay. And <clears throat> you could look at different ways. You could look at Portugal and Spain. They have a close affinity with Brazil and Argentina. Angela Merkel wanted sales of cars. She wants to safeguard that. Uh, the Dutch guy, Rute, might be looking at the ports there, an extra business coming through the Dutch ports. Sweden supported it because Commissioner Malmström is, is Swedish. Uh, you know, so there were reasons. And I think from once you saw those countries, you know, the writing was on the wall after that. There was a lot of support there for it. And, and in relation to the veto that you talk about, I, I think it's, it's a, a majority. And that majority is broken down to 65% of the, the countries and 72% of the population or vice versa to get this over the line. That's all that's needed. Um, but I think, you know, we have written to the Taoiseach today um, requesting an urgent meeting this week and we'll be asking him, you know, whatever about his impact analysis. The impact analysis may show, you know, the pharmaceuticals, for example, in Galway City, in Dublin City, Cork, Limerick, that it'll be positive for those and that will probably outweigh the losses in the beef sector. But you're talking, if you want, you know, when we talk about a European Union, we talk about a uh, family farm model of agriculture. We talk about keeping rural areas alive. We talk about not having to spend uh, an hour and 15 minutes in a car going from Athenry into a job in Galway. You know, we're, and we're talking about having enough to be able to play 15 on the under 14 team. Mm -hmm. And that's, what we're talking about. We're talking about livelihoods. We're also talking about keeping a sector alive that underpinned this country when we were on our knees. When every other sector was losing jobs, moving out of the country, agriculture was the one constant. We're talking about a sector that has continued to increase its exports year on year, every year for the past nine or 10 years. Last year, we were at over 13 billion euro of agri-food and drink products from this country, going into 180 countries around the world. And we're talking about safeguarding the backbone of that sector, which is the beef and livestock sector, because they're carried on in parts of the country and on farms throughout the country and on lands throughout the country that aren't conducive to dairying or tillage or other work. And we're talking about families and livelihoods here. And, you know, the, the beef sector is the backbone of rural Ireland. Joe, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for coming in to us. Now, the silage season is well underway, but some contractors are having difficulty with drivers. Emma Gilsonen has this report. Peter Farley is an agricultural contractor and the General Secretary of Farm Contractors Ireland, SCI. The FCI was set up to represent contractors and to help with any issues they may have. One of these issues is the sourcing of drivers for their contracting businesses. It is difficult at the minute. No one wants the long hours. I suppose a lot of this is geared towards time out, which lads is interested in being at home uh, at different times. So it is hard to get drivers at the minute and good drivers that has experience. And look, we put them through a training course on the tractors and all that day. They go to do the training, same as with diggers around like that, to get the tickets for the tractors. And I feel it is, it is a good job for them because at least the lads is aware then of what they have to do and how to mine the machine. And look, this year has been probably one of the difficult years because uh, a lot of the young people has gone abroad again. Uh, workers 
I suppose Dublin is, is really taking a lot of the, the work here and uh, what's paid for labour in Dublin is a big difference of what you can pay with say a silage contract and outfit. I suppose you want to be getting a good bit more in order to up the prices for your workers and that's, that's a big problem and I think it needs a whole overhaul, the whole silage system because this year alone you'd want to be probably getting 150, 160 an acre with the crops is out there uh, to make it justifiable. Sourcing Issues is trying to get, we'll say, farmer sons that would have a little bit of a, an idea of what's going on. We are looking at bringing in lads from abroad because I think it's the only way we're going to be able to sustain the silage operation is to have workers from abroad. Look, at, there is contractors out there and they have local farmers working for them, but they only want them on the dry days, the wet days they're at home. For a full-time contractor, you have to pay them lads all year round. You have holiday pay and everything taken into consideration. So the price that's there for the agri-contracting work at the minute is not feasible for contractors to sustain uh, and to keep their equipment in good order and to re for a replacement down the road. Uh, the prices and all that needs to change because everyone needs a good week's wages and the lads working for a contractor is no different than anyone else. They should be entitled to as good a week's wages as anyone else because the hours is long and they're good operators. The machines they're driving is so sophisticated. You need lads that has a bit of cop on and uh, that's able to mine the machines. So look at there's jobs out there, plenty of jobs. In the, in the agri-contracting business, there's over 10,000 people employed. And I think that's a big area of employment in rural Ireland, I must say. And I think the government needs to look more at uh, doing something for contractors. Because we need an apprenticeship. Because mothers and fathers are saying, look, young lad, go and get an apprentice somewhere. You can come back after if you want to. We need an apprenticeship system for our contracting game. Because lads has to learn. And it do you can't learn in a week. It takes a while to learn uh, to drive the harvesters and different things. So we need that apprenticeship there and we're calling on the government to get that across the line for us. Mike Moroni, the CEO of the Association of Farm and Forestry Contractors in Ireland, is here with us now. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Claire. So, Mike, at the moment there's second cuts going on around the country and as Peter pointed out in the VT, there's a lot of problems sourcing drivers. How significant is the problem of finding drivers across the country and what kind of an impact is it having around the country on the ground? Well, it is significant in terms of availability of drivers because uh, what we're tending to find, and it's across a lot of other industries and it's even across Europe as well, less people seem to want to drive tractors and machinery than in the past. Traditionally, we kind of felt that young lads would like to be driving tractors. There's, there's, a, there's a buzz attached to that sector, but there seems to be a change in mindset. And what's happening is that it's more difficult to get people who are willing to drive machines. And as well as that, it's even more difficult to get younger people with experience because many of them haven't driven machines. And in some of the agricultural colleges, they have limited exposure to actually driving the machines. Uh, so whatever the experience they will get, they'll get it at home. So what would you say are the main drivers there to the fall off as to why this is happening? It's, it's a difficult one to answer, but it, it's, it is essentially a society change. And for example, we've come back this week from a meeting of CETAR, the European Contractors Association, and the contractors in Holland and in Germany and in France are all experiencing the same thing. So younger people now are spending less time doing vocational practical work and they're spending more time on computer type work and they don't have the they haven't developed the skills and even they haven't developed a desire to be driving machines in the same way as in the past for example if we take the dutch example the dutch contractors association 
provides an information campaign, not to third level, not even to second level children, but they actually into primary school children, explaining what a tractor is, trying to get children to be kind of comfortable, to be, to be friendly towards a tractor, because what they, they find is that a, a lot of families don't want any association with this type of area. Now, we're not having the same experience as such, but it is a trend and it's a trend throughout Europe. Uh, less people wanting to drive machines such as this, even though, you know, your modern tractor has so much technology, you'd imagine that young people, guys in particular, would like, would like to be involved in it, but they seemingly haven't. And I've often told the story about one of our members last, uh, early last year, and he bought a new, he had a new tractor, a new baler with all the equipment necessary on it, all bells and whistles, etc., etc. And he was working in a village, at the edge of a village in North Cork. And he said, um, when the, the field he was working in was right next to the primary school. And when he was working there, only one child came to the fence to look at the tractor and baler. And he said he compared that with, say, 10 or 15 years years ago, when there would have been maybe 20 or 30 young, young lads standing there. There was one solitary child. And he went home to his wife and he said, I nearly felt sorry for him. Hard the interest is completely changed. And what about the boom on the construction side here? Is that impacting on the farm contractor? It's definitely drawn some people away. You know, so, some people will, will move out of agricultural contract work into construction work. Um, because we've, we have a boom and it's evident, you know, in any of the big cities around the country. We don't have major infrastructural work like road works going on, but we have plenty of other stuff going on. And that certainly draws some operators with skills attached to it. It's slightly different skill set in some senses. It is drawing people a little bit away. So what we probably need to do and what we'd like to see is is that the skill of the contra- of the driver, the machine driver, the skill attached to operating a baler, the skill attached to operating a combine, etc. And we've discussed it with our European counterparts. We'd like to see that raised to a new level, that there's a European certificate to acknowledge their skills and that gives them freedom to move throughout Europe. But it also gives them a little bit more pride in the skill. I suppose we can't um, ignore payment rates as well and the seasonal nature of the work. Anecdotally, people would say, you know, the contractors offer about €100 Euro a day. But depending on the day, whether it's, it's a fine day or a wet day, you don't know whether you're going to have work. And that day could go on for maybe 18 hours, which makes that €100 Euro maybe sound less um, enticing. Um, are there problems there in terms, how would you describe the issue of, of payment rates? Is that, is that a disincentive? It, it, it's not an easy one to answer in a sense, because um, you, what we traditionally in the industry, what, what drivers were quoted was a, a net rate into their hand. So, so when the contractor was employing a guy, traditionally they've been saying, for example, 500 euro a week or 600 euro a week or whatever the figure was as a net figure. And we, we need to move them away from it, mainly because the new payroll system that came in January requires, you know, essentially real time uh, reporting of wage payment systems. But, but for example, to, to pay somebody 500 euro a week, is costing the contractor about 750, somewhere between 730 and 750. And that's providing that the driver has maximised all his, his or her allowances. Now, in a situation where they don't maximise the allowances, the cost of the contractor is even higher. So if a contractor or any other employer, for that matter, quotes somebody a figure of 500 euro a week into your hand, you need to know how much that's going to cost you. So while, while that might appear as 12 or 13 or whatever euro per hour net into the guy's hand, 
it's in fact probably costing 17, 18 euro mm -hmm. to contract it because of our tax system. So th this year has, has made it more people more aware of it because the new payroll system, particularly as it applies to seasonal workers, has been a bit of a challenge for a lot of people. Um, the FCI have been looking for um, an extension to the work permit to allow con to allow um, seasonal operators to come in from New Zealand, Australia, uh, South Africa. Has that extension been granted? Have you made progress with that? Well, it, it hasn't been granted and there's been a working group set up to discuss it and to, to look at opportunities and, and look what's necessary, look to see what can be done on it. Um, we've had, you know, the, the system as such is that a driver from another country can come in here on a holiday type visa, but it's quite strict in terms of making sure that the person does have a holiday part, holiday component to it. Um, the reason it kind of comes into focus is that a lot of Irish guys go to New Zealand in particular, but also to Afri to Australia. Um, but for us, what's, what's significant about it is because drivers from Australia, New Zealand in particular, and from South Africa are using very similar technology to what we are. You know, it's not like the dairy industry where you bring in a guy to milk cows and essentially he's walking from his where he lives to the milking power and back twice a day. That's not what we, we can't put a guy up on a tractor and a baler and send him out to the countryside, you know, without having some knowledge of the language, without understanding the machines already working them. So the farm system is very similar in New Zealand to what we have here. We have a lot of Irish guys going to New Zealand in the off season. They have a lot of that experience. And we are saying perhaps we can replicate it in the reverse and get some New Zealand guys with experience in it. But I have to say it's a little bit more difficult because, for example, if I went to New Zealand tomorrow morning, my employer could get me a van or a car to drive around to, be, to see it. Uh, but in New Zealand, for example, and not to complicate it too technically, if you buy a car, your insurance is deducted from the price of your fuel. Whereas here, I would, if I was the employer, I would have to insure this guy or girl from New Zealand, so my insurance cost alone could be two thousand. So it's it's not we're not comparing like with like. It is a challenge. Some people have done it, but the skills are there. So in the short term, the solution is to look outside Ireland. Um, uh, finally, Mike, just one quick question on you. Obviously, represent not just the farm sector but the forestry sector. Uh, there's a lot more uh, drive there in terms of expansion on on planting. In the future, do you see a lot of opportunities there on forestry contract inside? Is that an area that's opening up? It is an area that's opening up. Um, you know, we also have to be aware of the fact that we haven't achieved our planting targets. So while the desire is to plant more forestry, if we look at 2018, for example, we were well below the targets that were set by the department. And, you know, and in some areas, you know, there's, there's, there's local dissension. Um, people are not really happy to have a whole areas of forest. For example, the Leitrim situation is, is very obvious. Um, yes, there are opportunities and there, are, there should be opportunities for contractors for work in the non-season. In other words, mainly to do with thinning type work, Etc. And some are, are already actively involved in it. But to go to the higher scale where you have forwarders, forestry harvesting machines, the investment involved is very significant. And therefore you'd need large areas. But, but currently at the moment, the biggest customer is Quilcha, which is a state body. And in a sense, they dominate the market in terms of they engage most of the contractors and they pay them. And it's not exactly an equal type arrangement in terms of customer and contract arrangement. Okay, Mike, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Thanks very much for joining us.
Uh, that's it for this week's show. If you have any comments or story ideas, please reach out to us on any of our platforms. We'll be back again next Thursday. See you then. Thank you.